Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Welcome to our eighth and final lesson in the life of Christ. This week we're going to be looking at the arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ as found in the Gospels. So join us as we begin today's study. Well, let's go ahead and get started tonight. Father, we thank you for this, this day, and we thank you for bringing us safely here to study your word. I pray that... Uh, You'd open our hearts now as we look at this final few chapters in the earthly life of Christ. And sort of a sad day too, Father, because it's the final class that we have together as a group. And we thank you for the many years we've been able to gather together and to learn. And I pray that whatever lies ahead will be just as good, if not better, than what we've had in the past. We just uh, thank you for this opportunity to have been with each other and have gotten to know each other over these many years. We just thank you for that. And again, Father, we commit this time to you and pray that you would teach us. In Christ's name, amen. amen. All right, the life of Christ, the last few chapters here. Arrest, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Last week, of course, we talked about his conflict with the Pharisees and how he answered his critics, along with a couple of his major discourses. And now we come to the last chapter um, of his, at least his earthly ministry, which would be the rest, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And really the important thing to understand about this, this was all planned by God. This is not something that caught Christ by surprise. That's what the History Channel tells you. You know, that Christ is just this nice teacher and he got caught up into something and the next thing you know, he's nailed on a cross and his followers are bewildered as to how this could happen and thus birthed this whole myth of Christianity. And uh, you don't even need to listen to that kind of stuff. This is all part of the plan of God. Why did Christ come into the world? To seek and to save that was lost. How was he going to do that? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And it says in Hebrews that a body you have prepared for me. Why? Why did Christ need a body? To become the sacrifice. Not only is our, he our high priest, but he is the sacrifice that the high priest made. So he took our place. Um, this is all part of the preordained plan of God. But we need to understand also that even though it was part of God's ordained plan that Christ be crucified, that does not let the people who crucified him off the hook as far as their culpability. They're still responsible for the decisions and the choices they made. And really, Christ's crucifixion is the culmination of his conflict with the Pharisees and religious leaders. We talked about that. Every time he ran into the Pharisees, there was a big fight. And usually it was over the Sabbath or over some silly law that they were trying to keep. They were more interested in the minutia than the big picture. They're more interested in tithing their little dill seeds than they were in doing justice, righteousness, and showing mercy. And Christ exposed them. And when you looked at the heart of the Pharisees, they were, what did Christ say? You, look, you make good the outside of the cup, 
but inside is full of all kinds of excess and wickedness and evil. And uh, he exposed them. And so what happened, of course, is that this culminated finally in his arrest and crucifixion. The basic, um, and this is really covered in the book of John to a great extent. I mean, the Gospel of John, starting around verse 12, towards the end, 12 through 20, um, to almost, it covers all of Christ's last week, basically. It's the last week of his life. It covers the upper room discourse. It covers um, the, the Gethsemane, where he went into Gethsemane. It covers Christ's high priestly prayer for us. It includes the uh, trials of Christ in, in much greater detail than the other Gospels. And why is that? Why do you think that was? Why is John more detailed in the trials of Christ than the other Gospels? He was the only one who did what? He's the only one that went in. Peter, he was gone, so he didn't have much to tell Mark when Mark wrote his gospel, right? Matthew, he left. Luke, of course, was a Gentile. He wasn't there. But who was there in the trials? Who, who was actually in the courtyard? Who actually went into the home of the high priest? It was John that went in there. So John had firsthand knowledge of the trials of Christ and what Christ went through. Courtyard, could anybody have got in or would he have had to have some kind of connection there to get in? Most Bible scholars and commentators seem to, seem to believe that John's father had some connection to the Hoi Polloi, Zebedee. That there was some, some connection that he had that gave John entree into the house of the high priest. Because other than that, John wouldn't have been able to get in to that. Um, he had to have some reason to be there. Or he had to know some people or something. Now, you know, again, we're not told in all the gory detail about what all that was. But most seem to indicate that Zebedee, you know, he had fishing boats. So he was probably, if there was a middle class in that day, he was probably part of the middle class. He wasn't the poorest of the poor. He wasn't filthy rich, but he wasn't poor, poor. Um, and so, if you look at basically the, the last week of Christ's life, or last few days, here's the general chronology of events. You have late Thursday night, you have an arrest. All right. Now, one of the difficulties that people have is they say, well, wait a minute. Christ suffered as the Passover lamb. He died as the Passover lamb. So when was the Passover? Friday. Friday. But then how could he have Passover with his disciples? Because their calendar is like our calendar. Their time, their... Well, to the Jew, when did the day start? It started at 6, six o'clock in the evening. Technically at what? Dusk. Sundown. So when did technically the Passover day start? Thursday. Thursday night, night when the sun went down. Yeah. So when Christ celebrated the Passover with the disciples, was he celebrating it on the day of Passover? Actually, he was. Yeah, he was. Yeah. And there are two times that you could celebrate the Passover. You could do it the evening or you could do it the next day. Either one. All right? And um, depending on whether you were in town or out of town, you would pick one or the other time slots in which to 
observe the Sabbath. So Christ could not only observe the Sabbath with his disciples, but he could also be the Passover lamb, so to speak. And if you look at the timing of his death, when did he die? What time of the day? He died at 3 o'clock. And that's the exact time the priest was killing the Passover lamb in the temple which really would freak you out because you could be the priest there and you just kill the Passover lamb and what happens to the veil of the temple? Yeah, now that would really give you a bad day because what was behind the veil? The glory of the Lord. You were dead if you saw that. Um, I heard the last thing the priest did when he got done with the killing the, the sacrifice was that he walked out and he, he put his arms like this and said it's finished. Well, you killed the Passover lamb, you had to take, you know, this is the Passover, this is, you know, and you had to, you know, do all of the rigmarole there. But you were doing it in the temple, and it was the most crowded day of the year, really, the Passover. That was the most crowded day of the year. Now, you have the Day of Atonement, which is different. That's, that's when you go in, when you took the blood into the holy place. That's Day of Atonement. Passover was different, but it was still one of the two highest holy days in the Jewish calendar. Um, what you have is a rest late Thursday night. And then what you have is you have the illegal and unjust trials through the night. Now, if you looked at Jewish law and even Roman law, these trials were unjust. They were illegal. They, technically, you could not have a trial at night. It was not permitted. Um, the Jewish leaders broke every law possible to get Christ on that cross as soon as they could. Um, it was not accepted procedure to have a trial at midnight or after the sun went down. The crucifixion begins Friday morning about 9 o'clock. All right, so that would be the scourging, the crucifixion. Well, the scourging would be early in the morning. And then the crucifixion, the leading to the cross. And in those days, you basically got up when the sun came up. So... You know, the sun would be up, you know, 6.30, 7 o'clock, somewhere around in there. So that's when your day started, for the most part. And this is right about the time of the summer, or the spring equinox, right? So you have about a 12-hour day, so it'd be light from like 6 to 6 or something around in there. And then at Friday at noon, what happens? You have darkness over the land. So Christ is on the cross for three hours, then you have darkness covering the land. And then the death of Christ is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So he's only on the cross for six hours. And then, because the next day was a high holy day, a high Sabbath, what does it mean by a high Sabbath? That they couldn't be working. Well, on a Sabbath you couldn't work, but what was different about this Sabbath? What made it a high holy day? Because not only it was a Sabbath, but it was a Sabbath when? During the Passover. So it was a special Sabbath. All right. And so the religious leaders came to Pilate saying, let's get these guys down off the cross so we don't defile our Sabbath day. The Passover fell on Friday. Or did, they, did they always celebrate it on Friday? I think it just depends on how it landed in the calendar. So if it landed at like 
It could land on a Friday. It could or land on Christmas. Every so often, it lands on a Sunday. Right. And what was that? And forgive me, I don't remember the exact the fifteenth of Nisan or something like that when they have the Passover. It's one of those days. Whatever day that lands on is the Passover day. This was special. This Sabbath was after the Passover. It was the day after the Passover. The Passover was Friday. The Sabbath is, of course, Saturday, the day after. And they wanted the criminals off the cross because they didn't want to defile their holy day. They just murdered the creator of the universe and they didn't want his body hanging on a cross to mess up their religious holiday. Talk about missing it. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine spending all eternity slapping yourself in the head for missing that? I mean, I can't imagine what's going through the mind of Caiaphas and Annas at this point. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. And then, of course, when does Christ rise again from the dead? Well, Sunday morning. Because that's when the women go down to the tomb to anoint him with spices. Why do they do that? They already anointed him once with spices. Well, didn't they kind of hastily do it? Yeah, it was quick. It was get him in the, get him in there. So the women went down to anoint him with spices um, on the the Sabbath or on the Sunday, and of course the tomb is empty at that point. Now immediately some people say, well, this really this chronology doesn't work because Christ wasn't in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Now if I tell you that I was gone for three days and three nights. How long would you think I was gone? Three days, three nights. How many hours? How many hours? Seventy-two. Seventy-two. I mean, or close to seventy-two. To the Jewish, this was a euphemism. Basically, any part of a day or night was considered a night. All right? So was Christ in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights? Well, euphemistically, yes, because he was there part of Friday, all day Saturday, part of Sunday. That was considered three days, three nights. All right. It's not he was in the grave for 72 hours. He was in the grave, you know, for more like 50 or 60 hours. Possibly, if that much. All right. But that's okay because the Jews understood that was a, that was a common figure of speech in those days. And you see that used throughout Jewish history. So that's basically the chronology. So what do you have going on, basically, Thursday night? Well, you have the upper room. All right, what is Christ doing in the upper room here? Yeah, Last Supper. He's, he's basically instituting the Last Supper. Yeah. That's where he, they did the... Um, the Passover. Well, then they, they yeah. the Lord's Supper for the first time. Well, what did Christ do with the Passover meal? What did he change it into? The, Lord, the Lord's Supper, communion. All right. He, he took what they did at Passover, and he basically instituted a new memorial. Why would he institute a new memorial? All right. So what's he basically, when he instituted the Lord's Supper in the last night, what was he basically saying? Nullifying what happens now is over. 
Passover's gone. Now you do the Lord's Supper. It's not that you do both. All right? It's not that you commemorate both. Because what did the Passover commemorate? Death passed, over. passed over. Deliverance from Egypt. Yep. What does communion commemorate? Death, resurrection. Deliverance from what? Sin. Sin. Which one would you rather commemorate? Communion. Yeah. Now, as, as you look at this whole concept of communion, we could spend all of our time just talking about it and not anything else, but this was a memorial, and it's important to understand that. This was not... You know, there, there's been a lot of denominations formed over this thing of communion and baptism. How you baptize, how you observe communion, there's been a lot of heat um, generated over this. But when you look at the basic elements, Christ used the unleavened bread and the wine. Why did he use those two elements? It's what was on the table, right? I mean, how clear can that be? I mean... It, it was what was there. I mean, they had the, the, the loaf of unleavened bread. Why did he use unleavened bread? Well, that's what they had available to them. Um, is it wrong to use leavened bread in the communion that we commemorate today? No, no because it's the, the element is not what's the mystical part of it, right? It's the commemoration of it, right? I remember one time here at Open Door, we, uh, we celebrated communion by... Um, passing around a, a, a piece of bread and breaking off a piece. Each of us broke off a piece, and that was our communion. And boy, I'll tell you, people just about flipped out. People freaked. They didn't know how to deal with that. Well, what's more, what's more emblematic of Christ's broken body? Getting a little cracker on a, on a gold plate or breaking off a piece of bread? Yeah, you, see, you didn't even have to think about that. That commemorates his broken body. Why did Christ use the wine? That's what they had there. That's what they had there. Was there anything magical about the elements themselves? No, it's just what they had available. The, the important part of communion is not the elements. The important part is what is it commemorating? All right. Yeah, so what we have done in our modern churches, are we valid in the way we do our communion? I would say no, because they just, they take it to the extreme. Like, at our church, you can't even touch the tray. Like, it has so much to it, you know. You, I'm not allowed to touch the tray. I'm not allowed, I only can do this. And I, so it's, it's just taken out of context. In most churches, mm -hmm. why can't you touch the tray? Because it's so special. No, the the no they come too. around, and you can just reach in there and get it. And you can only, you can't, you know, like somebody holding a cup there, and I give this to you, and you reach out to balance it. No, 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 don't you do that. Don't you do that. You can only take out that and take out. So they have ruined it. I went to Haggis Church and stand up. I mean, well, well, what are you doing there? Well, I, I, my son belonged to Haggis Church when they lived in San Antonio. What was he doing there? They lived there. He was based there. I'm giving you a hard time. And then when they passed the bread tray around and we took the tray, I almost passed out. 
I'm like, oh my God, they judging me. <laughs> so, no, you know, we have run well, the commemoration. Yeah. The point is you can't really, there's nothing magical. There's no way to do it. I know. You can kick crayon on the floor and God's not going to smite you. you yeah, it's, it's. it's in no black church, you're not. But see, here's the. I, I went to a Catholic church. It was an Eastern Orthodox. Oh, that'll really flip them out if you touch it. My wife's niece goes, and during their wedding, this little kid come up to take the communion and get a drink of the wine, and so, and they spilt some of it. Oh my god! Oh yeah, I've seen. That. And they stopped everything, and the priest, one of the one of the priests, went back into the back behind the screen area. Came out with a cloth, you know, added it all up real nice and, you know, ceremonially. And then after he exited, they continued to communion. No. Well, to them it is. See, and see, here's, here's our problem when, when we talk about this. We create so much noise around these things yeah. that you lose the significance of what it originally was intended to be. What's the original intent of communion? Why did Christ give it? To worry about what bread you used and what wine you used and whether you used a single cup or little cups or whether you... That's not what it was all about. What was it about? Remembering, Remembering his... And, that, and, and my, my urging to people is that if you don't focus on that and you're focusing on do I touch the pan, do I not touch the pan, do I use this bread or that... You've missed the point of the whole communion activity. You've not, you've not done communion. I mean, what should you be doing while the communion is being passed around? You should be contemplating yourself. You should be remembering the Lord's death. You should, and I don't like going to communions where while you know, they're passing the communion stuff around, they got somebody singing or music playing. Get stop. This is a time of reflection, a time to be quiet, a time to confess your sin you know it, it's not a it's not a circus act but what we've done is we've created all of these little things around it it is to be a it's to be a solemn thing right we're not to take it flippantly or anything like that but still sometimes we lose the significance of the communion in the mechanics of actually doing it what and do what we're doing well, I think it's a serious warning. What's that warning? What is that warning? See, in those days when they came together, they served, observed communion every time they met. And they had the love feast, and people were coming in there getting going home drunk and everything else. And Christ is saying, you're, you're profaning. The this is a serious thing. Taking communion is probably the most serious thing, memorially-wise, you do. You need to do it with a certain degree of seriousness and not to just pop it in and think nothing of it. Um, I, I do think there's a curse for those who do not take it seriously. I think it's something, and as a pastor, you know, your job is to remind people that this is a serious, solemn thing. You need to confess your sin. If you've got known unrepentant sin in your life, you shouldn't be taking this. And you're not willing to deal with it. You shouldn't be taking this. That's what it means to eat and drink unworthily. You're, you're, because you're profaning the very thing that Christ did. But the significance is in the memorial 
not in the elements themselves. There's no magical power inherent in the elements. And that's where Catholicism bungles it up. Because see, Catholicism says that physically, literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. It may look like a cracker, it may taste like grape juice, but really that, as far as God is concerned, is as good as the blood and body of Christ. And it infuses grace into you. When you take that, you get an infusion of grace. And the Lutherans don't go quite that far, but they say mystically that those elements are identified with the body of Christ. All they are not, they do not become the body of Christ. They're mystically identified with the body of Christ. It's called consubstantiation. And what we do is we see that as mere memorial. Ryan, you were. Well, I just uh, had a question because you were talking about like how to take like the actual item. Um, I something I was wondering is just a random kind of question, a little off topic, but you seem to know a lot more about Catholicism than I do, obviously. Um, do you know what like the whole deal with holy water is? Because like, I know I've had, like uh, a. It's like, supposedly water blessed by the priest that has some cleansing power to it. Okay, so I, I was just wondering, so I don't know what you're talking about. I was thing. I got in trouble since I was a little kid because we were at a funeral, uh, I'm not kidding, at a wedding, and I didn't know what the little bowls of water were. And me and my cousin Dorm were playing in the holy water, and some lady like, walked over and like, smacked us. Yeah, you're supposed to dip your finger. You're supposed to dip yourself in it and, and touch your. I got a big yeah. 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 Under, understand. Came right over and smacked me and my cousin right in the face and like, oh my god, it's like you know they. We didn't know anything. We just thought right a little thing of water and we're bored at a wedding in front. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Locked up and everything. So when they're when they're getting ready to go to get to the communion, the priest he makes quite a. A, that that is the literal body of Christ. When the priest prays that prayer, yep. they believe in Catholicism that they actually bring Christ down off the throne in heaven to that those elements. And, yes, they know, do. And 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 yeah, and they will freak if if and that's why they if the bread is left over, that is the body of Christ. That is whole, you can't just toss that in the garbage. You got to lock it back up into the safe. So that the mice don't get it. Thing. And when they when they get when they get ready to go get it or put it back, if if you see and you can tell who the strong Catholics are because they'll sit up in their chair and they'll, all of a sudden they'll focus on what he's doing. Really? <laughs> I've been there. I've seen it. Yeah. I've seen it. And see, and again, here's here's remember remember what I told you a long time ago. The more formal and the more garbage you go through, the less reality is there, right? So the more they glitz this right up called the Mass, the less reality is there. There's no reality to it. But as Christians, I think sometimes as Protestants, we flip too far the other way and just treat it as, oh crap, we got communion today, I wanted to get home early and watch the ball game. Wait a minute. This, this, is, this is a memorial. This is a serious time of reflection. And we need to take it seriously. And Christ instituted here, on the last night when he was alive, he replaced the Passover meal with communion. And he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, there's no frequency given to it, but when you do it, this is how you do it. And this is what the significance is. Because what had he just done with the religious leaders? He replaced them with who? The disciples. 
with the disciples. Christ is not reforming Judaism of that day. He's, he's not here to reform it. He's here to get rid of it. It is, it is totally apostate. It has totally missed what God originally intended to be. He's here to remove it. And he doesn't want the people following the Pharisees. He wants them following the apostles. And he's got to make that clean break. Because the Old Testament, all that the stuff, all the stuff that the Old Testament was pointing to is now what? Happened. It's fulfilled. As you drive across the country, you might see signs, you know, Chicago 300 miles, Chicago 200 miles. But once you're in Chicago, guess what? There is no more sign. You know, Chicago zero miles. No, you're in Chicago. The Old Testament was pointing to Christ, but now that Christ is here, the signs are gone. But the Jews are still focusing on the signs. We have the Upper Room Discourse. Now, during the Upper Room Discourse, and we don't have the few weeks to work through all of the events here, but basically you have Christ washing the disciples' feet. What's the significance of that? Humility. Humility. What were they arguing about on the way up to the meal? Who's going to sit on the right and left hand up? Right. Here's Christ. Now, do they know that Christ is going to be dead within a day? No. They, they don't have any idea, right? Um, Christ is going to die. He's been telling them three times at least he's going to come up to Jerusalem to die. They didn't catch on to that. And they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And what, what does Christ do right in the middle of that? He takes off his... He, he really girds himself and picks up a basin and washes their feet as a sign of what? Humility, service to one another. Um, yeah, in, in the church, and you know, this again, this is, most, this is really important. When you look in the church, the pastor is really the servant of all. The, the one who is greatest is the one who is least. That's, it's opposite in the kingdom. And what, Christ, what did Christ say? Uh, the Gentiles, you have people that lord it over others, but in the kingdom it shall not be so. For whoever is greatest among you shall be servant of all. That's the idea. It's an inverted kind of concept. Why did Christ come? To be served? No, to, see, to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Um, and then you have the expulsion, not the expulsion, but really the, the, the departure of Judas. Was Judas there at the beginning of the meal? Yeah. yeah. But partway through, what did Christ do? He took the bread and he dipped it and gave it to Judas. Now, that was a sign of honor. When, when, when the host gave that, that was, a, that was a sign of honor to the one receiving that. And uh, Christ told Judas, whatever you do, do quickly. Judas left. And, of course, what did the, fair, the rest of the disciples think? He was on an errand. He was on an errand. They, the disciples, you understand how dense the disciples were? They didn't get anything. They never fully comprehended until the Holy Spirit came. Of course. Now, you know, we could sit there and say, what a bunch of lunkheads. Why didn't they get it? Well, if you'd have been there, you wouldn't have got it either. All right? Give them a little bit of slack. We wouldn't have got it either. And then, of course, after Judas left, what did Christ do? He instituted the Lord's Supper after the betrayer left. He instituted the Lord's Supper. And then you have the journey to the Gethsemane. You find that in Matthew 26, 30. What is Gethsemane? The place of the olive press. Christ often went there to pray. Now what does Christ know? 
They're coming to get him. And how do you know that? Well, he knew what Judas knew. What did Judas know that Christ would do? Go to Gethsemane. That's a good place to corner him and get him. The disciples didn't catch on to that, but Christ knew. And of course, in Gethsemane, what does Christ do? He goes in to pray, takes three of the disciples, and of course, what do they promptly do? Fall asleep. Yeah. What's wrong with them? Well, look, it's the middle of the night. It's been a long day. All right? Have you ever tried to stay awake when somebody's droning on and on and on in prayer? It's hard to do, isn't it? Remember, I remember when I was a little kid, I dreaded prayer meeting nights. I dreaded them. Because all the men would get together and, and they go in a room and they would go around the room and there's always somebody has got to blab for 10, 15 minutes a pop. And as a little kid, it's kind of tough to sit there and listen to 30 minutes of people going around the room praying. Um, it was tough for them to stay awake. And of course, Christ is there and it says he sweat, as it were, what, great drops of blood. He, he was under great duress. Why? This was the hour of Satan. This was Satan's hour and Christ knew what was coming upon him. And of course, what does Christ pray that would happen if possible? Mm -hmm. Why do you pray that? Too, we, we don't fully comprehend the reality that when he died on that cross, all the sin of the world, all the sin, all the sin was laid upon him. Yep. And it became him. And you know, when you stop and think about it, he is a holy God. When you, when you think about that and the reality that everything that is absolutely foreign to him, I guess the term would be antithesis, everything that is opposite of what he is, is sin. And all of that came upon him. That we can, I can only imagine, maybe when we get to heaven we can talk to him about it what that must have been, just the reality right. of that happening. Even yeah. then we won't get it. Because it's not something our pea brains will ever sort out. It really isn't. But I think you're right. You know, what, when Christ prayed for that cup to pass from him, you know, I hear preachers drone on, I get irritated with them. They say, well, you know, he's looking forward to the horror of the cross and, you know, the agony of suffering. Look, that was not what bothered Christ. It really wasn't. I don't think it was at all. The physical pain was not what bothered him. It really wasn't. Um, that's what bothers us. Why? He died that sinner's death. Why does it bother? Well, we're, we're physical creatures. We don't like discomfort. So we focus in on that. You know, we talk about the agony of the, of the beating he took and... and I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to say that that's not an issue. But what was it that that really appalled Christ to the core of his being? Separation. From who? From God the Father. Yeah. Now, how long has Christ been in communion with the Father? Forever. He's never been out of communion. For, for three hours, one Friday, he took upon himself the sin of the world. All of it. Well, no, I, I will never, I often think about that. What does that mean? I, I don't get it. My brain stops. I can't, I can't fathom it. I, I don't understand it. 
But whatever infinite God went through was equivalent to an eternity in the lake of fire for all of the redeemed. Whatever that was. I mean, that's really what he did. And he, he, he took upon himself in the, um, you know, the sense of having the sins imputed to him of all of the world, not, not just those who would be saved. That, that's, that's bad theology when you say, well, Christ only paid for the sins of the elect. The answer is yes, if you mean by that, only the elect have their sins forgiven. No, if you mean by that, that it was a limited sacrifice. We've talked about this before. It's not a limited sacrifice. In a sense that somehow Christ only paid enough to provide redemption for only the elect. No, the infinite, he paid an infinite sacrifice. It was infinite in scope. Um, all of the sin, just imagine, I mean, stop and think about that. Think about being having all the guilt of the six million murdered Jews on your head, plus all the murders of all of the human history, all of the evil, all of the wickedness, everything, all of that imputed to you, with you being perfect. I mean, it's bad enough as a fallen human being to have conscience, isn't it? What's it like to be totally perfect and have all of that just dumped on you? And not only that, but from, we'll never get it. From the God's perspective, He knew every one of those sins in detail. Yeah. And God the Father, what God the Father did for those three hours is God the Father turned His back on His Son. If there ever was a time where the Trinity was almost split apart, it was that time. Now, can this Trinity be split apart? No, no. Of course not. But that's about as close as it could come. Why? You've got the Father, you've got God taking upon Himself in the person of Christ the sin of all humanity. You've got God the Father who cannot stand sin in His presence. God cannot stand sin. And you've got one member of the Trinity that has become sin. You've got the other member of the Trinity that is totally revolted by that, repulsed by that, turning his back on his own son to the point that Christ said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we talk about, you know, the pain of the cross as though that was the big deal. We missed the point. We totally missed the point. The agony of the cross, and that's what, that's what really, that was the horror that Christ faced in Gethsemane. Not the prospect of being beaten and hung on a cross and dying a painful death, but of taking upon himself the sin of the world. Was there another way? No. How do you know that? How do you know there wasn't any other way to accomplish redemption? Because God said that the wages of sin is death. So there had to be a death paid. Because God's decrees are immutable. But why did, why did God design it that way? Well, the other way is we all die. Mm -hmm. In our sin. Yeah. No redemption. 
Why, well, how do you know that there couldn't have been another way? Because if it had, he wouldn't be. You bet. If there was another way that he could have accomplished redemption other than this, what do you think God would have done? He would have jumped at it. It was all part of God's plan. Yeah. This was the only way. What is it that shatters? I mean, stop and think. What is sin, basically? What is sin? Willful going transgressing against God. More basic than that. It's a violation of what? The relationship. The relationship. I mean, it's, it is that. But how is that manifest? It's manifested in the violation of my relationship before God. It's, it's me not trusting God. It's me being selfish. It's me exalting myself. What is the most selfless act God could have ever done? I would say there's no greater love than to lay down your life for another. The greatest thing that God could have ever done is what he did. To die for us. That that's the greatest thing. And and that was what was required to shatter the violated relationship we have with the Father. That was what was required to bring us back to God. So next time you want to sin, think about the price that was paid. It doesn't make sin fun anymore. You know, there's another thing to think about, too, when you look at the cross and Christ's death. Hell is such a tremendously terrible thing. The reality of the eternal damnation and the judgment and the harsh reality that God is going to execute vengeance and judgment forever and ever. That in order to make a way back from that reality, he was willing to send his only begotten son. God did God made the greatest sacrifice God could have made. There was nothing greater God could do than what he did. There's no action he could have taken greater than the action he took. And it was nothing but that action that he took that would have accomplished the reconciliation. And stop and think about it. What is the great, what is the great punishment in hell? And what, what, what is the greatest agony a lost person is going to face in hell? Separation from God. I mean, hell is not a fun place to be, physical torment. Are you really separated from God? You are abandoned by God. Because you're, you're actually an eternal punishment inflicted by God. So you're, all, you're really separated yeah. from the blessing side of God. You're abandoned by God in the sense that there is no positive relationship you have with God and there's no hope of ever having a positive relationship right. with right. God. Yeah. I mean, God is omnipresent, and He's everywhere at once, right? But in hell, what do you feel? You feel the abandonment by God because God will never incline towards you for any kind of relationship. You will never have the possibility of saying you're sorry. It doesn't, it's too late.
abandonment by God. The Bible says, Behold therefore the goodness and the severity of God. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, when I, when, I look at the, when I look at heaven and hell, I look at the reality that those that are saved are, are going to experience an eternity where they never fully come to that reality of God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's relationship. You know, all the good things that heaven has to hold. We're never going to exhaust the depth of what God has prepared for us there. No matter how long we spend. On the other end of the spectrum, in that hell, in that lake of fire, the same omnipresent God has that harsh side to him. The harsh reality that vengeance is mine. What is right, I'll repay. They're never going to exhaust that aspect of God's character either. You know, I've never thought about it that way, but that is a that is a that is a unique perspective. I mean, we think, and, I, and that that's really. I've often thought in heaven, will we ever get to know God for exactly who He is in all of eternity? Well, no, because He's an infinite God. We'll never get there. But in the same sense, those who are abandoned by God, will they ever reach the end of God's wrath? No, because it's an infinite wrath. Part two of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.